Hello, faithful, lovely listeners and new listeners alike. Welcome to this month's episode of the Madams Cast. Usual rules apply. If you're listening, please download. That helps us with our numbers and it helps other people find us. Do feel free to feedback either via Instagram, Twitter, or drop us an email at timmadams.com. Uh, and I'll be very happy to to hear from you with any hints, ideas, or places you'd like the podcast to go. It's a very open project. Now, you will remember that as a previous guest on the Madams cast, we had the very, very lovely Jane Stewart from Eastgate Larder in talking about her medlars, which was just a fantastic conversation. Um, and I'm very pleased today to announce that we have her nomination from that episode of the cast live at the other end of the phone internet world hopefully a very nice man called jonathan redding from norfolk gin jonathan are you there yes hello tim i am here yes oh well that at least is a relief when everything's working as it should be um welcome to the madam's cast you know sit yourself down get comfy um jonathan I'm getting used to meeting strangers over the internet to talk about the things they love, which sounds a lot more clandestine than it is. <laughs> we're very, we're very family-focused show here. We're very, um, we're very much firmly planted with our feet in the world of food. Yeah. Um, it's lovely to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that's a difficult place to start, but it'll just help. Well, I suppose there's 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 sort of. You know, three stages to life they talk about don't you there's life for me it's life before gin and then there's life in gin so <laughs> gin gin started about six years ago uh but but prior to that i managed to cram sort of uh 22 years and or 23 years in the army and sort of 10 12 years working in industry local government charitable hang on, hang on. stop 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 you're, i think you're our first serviceman Oh, maybe, maybe. I think, I think you are. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to check my notes, but I'm yeah. pretty sure you are. Okay, well, let's just have a quick look at that. What regiment did you serve in and what exciting places did you get to go to? Ah, well, you see, I, I joined the British Army in 1976. And I think by that time, the empire was well in decline. So <laughs> interesting places <laughs> that the British Army went to included things like Aldershot and Catterick. <laughs> My hometown of Warminster. Uh, no, I never served in Warminster. I did serve in, 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 in Andover and uh, up, up Avon. So I've been in the Wiltshire, Hampshire area. Um on a number of occasions, yes. Um, but no, I started and we were obviously facing the massed hordes of the uh, United Soviet Republics uh, oh, during yeah. the Cold War. So it was all about the inner German border and we were all poised to repel the invading hordes, but they never came. Well, they were sneaking through tunnels underneath you. Yes, uh, yes. Desperate to get in. <laughs> yes, yes. Poor so, yes, yeah, so I spent a long a long time in there. I mean, my... my 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 cat badge, if you like, was Royal Corps of Transport. Oh, okay. Uh, and I I thought at sixteen, I, I I saw the recruiting advertisements and everything else, so I knew that if I joined the army, I'd have a motorbike, a girlfriend, there'd be plenty of beer <laughs> uh, and sport. So I, I fell for that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, I think at that time, like a lot of adolescent young men, you know, getting on with dad can be a bit of a stretch at times. And uh, so I thought, well, if I, if I go off and join the army, I'll get away from some older bloke bossing me around. 
only to find the army was rather full of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't serve under Lieutenant Colonel Crossley, did you, by any chance? No, I didn't, no. Oh, well, no. you're all right then. Uh, that was my wife's father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, the army was good to me. You know, I got plenty of opportunities to try and do things and lots of different education. Uh, but I think by the time my daughter was... 15, 16, it was time to leave, I think. So yeah. at the time she was finishing GCSEs before she started A-levels. Brilliant. And so then from there you went into what? Well, I, I, I acquired some professional qualifications in human resources okay. uh, up in Strathclyde in London. Uh, sorry, Glasgow. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I went into industry and commerce as a human resources manager. And uh, from there, I went in to do the same sort of thing in local government. Okay. Uh, and then in the charitable sector, and then got sort of pulled into doing operational management and fundraising whilst I was in the charitable sector. Mm -hmm. uh, that came to an end, and I had to find something else to do. Uh, so it happened to be gin. But there we are. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I, well, I what was it going to be? It was just going to be a new adventure of whatever form, but uh, so I set up a little company called New Adventure, Norfolk, uh, yeah. thinking I might do HR consultancy or I might do uh, stress cancer, I don't know. But I ended up making gin, so that's what we did. Yeah. Right, but that is, um, that's an interesting shift from human resources and fundraising yes. into, into distillation. Yeah. And I'm gonna, I wanna just have a, a a little tiny look at that because I think it's quite interesting. So, um, uh, you 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 might remember this or not? I don't know, but there was a tea company back in the eighties or early nineties, and they released a load of classic old comedy tapes as part of a promotional activity. And one of them was by Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, I think. Yes. And in it was a character called Sir Arthur Greve Streebling or Streeve Greebling. I can never remember which yes. way round it was. And he tells a story about all sorts of poisonous animals coming to him in the bath. Now, the things that come to me in the bath are good ideas. And I'm just wondering if the gin idea was a bath idea and if not, how it became nascent and what, you know, what inspired you to make it happen? Well, I, 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 I it probably wasn't actually a bath idea, but I, I'd just seen a number of articles in short succession of sort of husband and wife teams making gin in their kitchens and seeming to be successful. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem to be a barrier to entry to the marketplace. You don't have to be fifth generation gin maker. Mm -hmm. And so I started then just playing around with botanicals and, and neutral spirit and working out whether or not I could make a flavor some gin that was worth having. Um, uh, the only bath connection is that we use a bathtub method. Oh, hang on a minute. What's the bathtub method? Oh, well, it, it's kind of a reference to the Prohibition era in the USA where there was a thing called bathtub gin there, which I think they just cooked up some pretty awful hooch <laughs> uh, and then literally stuck it in a huge bathtub with spirits to kind of soften it down a bit <laughs> before straining it out with ladles and, and flogging it to the grateful public uh, who are happy to have any form of alcohol. Um, technically, it's um, it doesn't have a second distillation after the botanicals have given up their flavour. Oh, 
Oh, so, okay, interesting. So I thought that was that. I thought you had raw alcohol, and you'll be able to tell me because I, you know, I always think I know everything about something, and I, it always turns out that actually I only had the vaguest inkling. Um, so in my head, you make, I mean, effectively, it's whiskey that hasn't been matured, right? You make a beer, you distill the beer, and then that gives you ethanol. Uh, yes. Yeah, that gives you your spirit base. Yeah. Then you put other stuff in it, and then you distill it again. That was my understanding of that's how you get gin. Well, that's that's certainly one classic way of making gin, and that's the predominant uh, method. Uh, I would say probably in the UK at the moment, probably 90, 95% of people buy in a neutral spirit, add some botanicals, do a second distillation. Um, there's a tiny percentage doing what we do. Uh, and then there are the really big companies who, as you say, start with the wheat, yeah. do the beer, the mash, do the distillation, then make the gin, then bottle it. And of course, you've got some people who've got large chunks of Herefordshire, so they can do it all on site, which is mm. rather lovely. Mm. Okay, we don't have right. a big garden for that. <laughs> right. So tell me, tell me exactly what your process is in then. So you're buying in the, the grain spirit? We buy in neutral grain spirit at 96 plus percent ABV, which itself is not a very nice product. No. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the warnings on the bottle of that, you know, it's caustic, wear goggles, wear gloves. Um, you know, and of course, it's highly flammable. So it's and it's not something you want to be drinking on its own. It's it's far too dangerous, I think. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But of course, as, as a product, it is. You know, it's, it's it is mostly ethanol, and the rest of it's water. Um, and there might just be the tiny, tiniest, tiniest portion of other impurities that make neutral grain spirit made from different things slightly different. Um, might affect the structure depending on the minerality of the water, etc. Um, and uh, so we then use our bathtubs. We introduce four botanicals to start with, and we're doing that at ambient temperatures. We're not heating them, not chilling them, or doing anything else to them. And uh, we just give them plenty of time to mellow, and a bit like a marinade, really, isn't it? You've got to give it time. Mm -hmm. And I think the trick is getting the time right. So it's all these things are time and temperature dependent, aren't they? Yeah, if it's absolutely. marinated in the fridge, it's going to take a lot longer than if it's marinating in your warm kitchen. So I'm it, with you. It's about under, getting that organic chemistry right, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and then we take it through a couple of other stages, uh, and then we take out the bulk botanicals, and then we add two more botanicals at the final stage, and that's really only about an hour and a half to two hours long. Okay, and that's where the periodic taste testing comes in um, to to start sampling it a bit before the hour and a half, and when it's absolutely ready, then you remove the rest of the botanicals and it's ready for bottling. But I mean, you must add some water at some stage. Oh yes, it, we let it down to thirty nine percent. Yes. Okay, I was just starting to panic then. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 yes, it, you. Uh, you know, ultra, ultra strong alcohol isn't the body's not made for it, really. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, I mean, I, there are times in my life where I would have argued that my body was definitely prepared for some ultra strong yes. alcohol, uh, but I think 96% is probably pushing pushing it a little bit. Um, as, it, as it says on the bottle, that is caustic, that, that will burn your tongue. 
Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. Or, or you can't taste anything at that degree because you've you've anesthetized. On the other hand, what we do with you know, if if a beer isn't particularly flavoursome, you just chill it so it's really really cold. Then of course your taste buds are chilled, so you don't notice it doesn't taste of anything. <laughs> um, yeah. So so that broadly speaking, it's 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 an infusion method, if you like. Um, but it, yeah, the, the, the craft is get for, from my perspective, it's getting the timing, right. The proportions, right. You've got to have the right area, surface area of contact going on. And you've got to start with good ingredients. If you put rubbish juniper in, you'll get rubbish gin. Well, it doesn't matter what you're making, whether it's in the kitchen, the vineyard yeah. or the steeping room, whatever it is, if you start with rubbish, that is what you will get out. There yeah. is no you know i was reading a book by alistair little uh, yesterday just recapping on something and he made a beautiful statement about you know keeping it simple you can only keep stuff simple and make it brilliant with the best stuff and that's yes. that's where the hard work is so did you struggle to find botanics that were up to snuff um i i did have to go and be quite selective with who i bought them from um to make sure you got a consistency of, of quality and um, flavor as well because they they do slightly vary from season to season as you'd expect because they're they're natural products they're not yeah. chemicals um, yeah. and you know one year your coriander seeds might be a bit bigger than another year so that's a different surface area so you just have to tweak things a little bit to make sure the balance is right or oh, you're giving away some of your mm. I mean I, I can taste cardamom in there a little tiny bit of coriander I mean are you, are you... I mean, is it a closely guarded family secret or do you sort of tell people roughly what else is in there as well? Well, I, well, initially I sort of was was desired to be vague and create some mystique. Nice. But then again, I suppose, you know, Picasso could have listed the paints he used in enormous detail and the canvases and the brushes he used, but other people may not be able to create what he created. So I'm less concerned these days. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but juniper's king. Green cardamom is is the queen, which you've picked up, and then coriander is the is a good good knitter, good base, a good fishing net for the rest of them, and then lime zest is those those are the those are the core that go in at the beginning. Nice, nice, yeah. Wow. But it's it's tricky to name them because sometimes if I say there's cardamom in there, people go, I don't like cardamom. <laughs> <laughs> and then they don't oh. the gin. So it's, it's a funny thing. And and I do have a big fan of the gin. And, and she doesn't like one of the botanicals I use. And I haven't got the heart to tell her I use it. <laughs> well, well, yeah, if it's not broken, don't fix it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just a funny thing. But, of course, botanicals are masters of the disguise. I mean, people taste it and say, oh, I've got lemongrass. Oh, I've got ginger. And and they may well have because some of these flavonoids cross over. And it's a bit like, is that purple or is it red and blue mixed? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I get color you. Analogy. That's, that's why I say it's a bit like that. So what? I don't say to people, no, you're wrong, because that, that would be rude. Um, but you just say, well, it's something, yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> without saying yes or no um yeah yeah, yeah. and flavor is a sense isn't it and all the senses are sort of better the more you use them like yes. i think you get used to feeling things then you sort of pick up more grain texture than other people and when you really 
tune your taste buds to taste things, then you get to the ingredient, but mm. that's just the starting point and go beyond it. And so whenever, let's take coriander seed as an example, because as you say, it's a good knitter. When I taste coriander uh, as a seed form with the round ones rather than the oval ones, which have a much greener flavor, uh, yeah. and a slightly different profile, but you taste those, I get, first of all, I get sort of burnt orange peel, then I get a caramel note, and then it'll finish with a sort of hidden note that I really think of as dried coriander, which is this sort of almost, almost smoky, almost tobacco-y kind of zestiness about it. And I think lots of people taste things at different levels. Yes, and they have a different vocabulary as well. Yeah, true, true. true. So, you know, for for me, there's there's just a little bit of earthiness as well. Mm. But, you know, it's it's for different people, isn't it? Because we all have different taste buds and different sense of smell as well. We're all a little unique in that regard i think so what do you add to your gin to what's your what's your go-to gin recipe where you know like once you've got your gin there i mean are you a tonic guy are you a sort of more of a dry martini type chap i mean what how do you roll well if i if i'm really kicking the boat out then it's a white lady oh okay what's that tell me about that that's well not not to be confused with what a white lady is in Australia because that's meths. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and I said this to an Australian lady, and she gave me a horrified look. And I said, Well, that, that means something completely different in Australia. So, not for the Australian market, but no, a, a, a white lady is a classic cocktail. It's, it's two measures of Norfolk gin, one measure of Cointreau, and one measure of fresh lime juice. Uh, so, fresh lemon juice. And you just rattle that around in a. Um, cocktail shaker pour it into a martini shaped glass uh, yeah. sit down and sip in the sunshine yes so that's that's the sort of luxurious one um i suppose more on a day-to-day basis it'd just be a strip of orange peel uh, a little bit of fresh thyme and, and and fairly neutral tonic water indian tonic water nice that's how, i mean there's something very refreshing about a gin and tonic right. Yeah. Well, it's a classic because it works, isn't it? I think there's a sometimes people say it's a cliche or it's a, it's boring because it's a classic. Well, it's become classic because it 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 works. I think that's my theory. Yeah. One of my um one of my all time favourite non food authors who's sadly no longer with us is a guy uh, who was called Terry Pratchett who left behind a yes. huge volume of of um uh, genre fiction, if you like, yes. and he had a sentence which. I really liked, which was that um, cliches are cliches because they are the hammer and screwdriver of the two <laughs> language. And I just thought that's absolutely brilliant because without cliche, you've got no shortcuts, have you? Yes, but I, yeah. I tend to avoid them like the plague. Well, there you go. No, don't get any shortcuts. You'll be all right. Oh, Jonathan, this is marvellous. I could talk to you all day. Give me a quick... Uh, potted history of the gin from inception to sort of now then and tell me um, what you're doing with it now and then we'll dive into three things you'd like to change about the world of food. Well I suppose the, the, the potted history was you know as I said made redundant unexpectedly what am I going to do uh, and when you're over 50 and you start applying for jobs you suddenly find that nobody wants to talk to you um, so I sulked for a bit and so the short story is unemployment drove me to drink and the drink I chose was gin, but I thought, you know, let's make some of my own. And we did 55 recipes. 
I came back to number 54 and that's the one we still use today. And we just do one recipe of gin and we have a couple of specials which are oak aged, um, but they're only in very limited quantities. Um, and then, of course, as you know, talking to Jane, we will be doing something different next year, which mm. will be a unique harvest of medlars from Jane's um, very important orchard of medlars. Uh, and we will have a medlar Norfolk gin. Brilliant. And if we want to get this from you, uh, and I say we, if the listeners here want to get this from you, we just sort of search engine Norfolk Gin and that will ping us to you. You'll find Norfolk Gin, yes. We, finally, after five and a half years, we opened up an online shop. <laughs> well done you, well done you. And I have to say, um, some of the best plastic-free packaging solution I've ever seen. So, I think um, it is quite good, yes. Yeah, very, very good indeed. Okay, brilliant. I feel like we're all ginned up, Jonathan. I feel like yeah. I'm getting to know you. Um, I feel like it's time to put the, the thumb screws on you a little bit and find okay. out what number one thing is that you would like to change about the world of food. Now, you know from the brief and probably from uh, Jane and even Sarah's uh, previous yeah. episode, you can go wherever you like with that. It's up to you, all right? If you want to have some fun with it, have some fun with it. If you want to make it uber serious, that's fine too. If you want to go in between, no drama. They're your points about your ideal world of food that you'd like to change. So it's up to you and I'll just follow you. Well, I, you I, I do have three, Tim, because you asked for three. And uh, I suppose one of them is, is probably a little more serious than the others. So I'll start you with a light one, if I may. Oh, OK, good. good uh, then we'll do a meaty one. So it's a bit like a sandwich, isn't it? <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> Although non non meat non meat fillings are available, um, well, I, I I think my first one is you know we we live in an era where the truth uh, is an elusive subject, <laughs> uh, you know the world of fake news and conspiracy theories. I suppose one of the things I'd like to see changing is is to stop mislabeling things or miscalling things something which they are not. I suppose there was a lot of talk earlier in the year um, about sort of vegan sausage rolls. Uh, and I kind of take the view, well, you know, sausage is a sausage and a sausage roll is a sausage inside a pastry. If there's anything else in the pastry, it should be called a pastry um, is one sort of take. And then I think the other slightly thing is sort of things being labelled, you know, sort of an apple being labelled as lactose free or um Bananas labelled as suitable for vegetarians. So I think sometimes there's some gratuitous <laughs> labelling of products, uh, you know, um, which which I think isn't very straight with people. I, I, I think we should be clear that, you know, something should be what it says. It's not sort of, it's, it's sort of like non-alcoholic spirits is another one. Well, it isn't a spirit. You know, it can't be a gin if it's non-alcoholic. So I think it's that sort of mislabeling thing, Tim. Are we allowed to yeah. change that? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I th look I, well, uh, being uh, at least attempting to be some in some way a useful um, journalistic whetstone for you to sharpen your opinion against, I'm going to challenge some of that um, in a, in a, in a friendly and enjoyable way. Um, right, I'm going to use this, the vegan sausage roll example. Mm, yes because I think it's one that everyone's familiar with. I mean, you know, quite frankly, I think it was spawned by one of the most dubious uh, <laughs> eateries in the world. But <laughs> I, 
leave that opinion for later. Um, now, a sausage used to be just something, some some gut stuff with some minced meat that was yeah. seasoned, right? But a sausage is now, in its modern parlance, a tubular, edible thing. Mm, yes, yes. You, you know, I mean, I, and I think there are some non-vegan, supposedly meat sausage rolls out there that I would not na- label as a sausage roll either. So I'm not sure it's the vegan thing that upsets yeah. me. Because sausages aren't meat. They're sausage-shaped rather than meat-shaped, if you like. Yeah. So I, I think the concept of a vegan sausage roll um, is, or, or this is pure pedantism, but I mean, it is allowable in that bracket, but they should definitely not be what they are. <laughs> um, okay. But unnecessary labelling, and I, look, I'm really happy for you to disagree with me on, on the vegan sausage roll thing. If you think a sausage roll should all, always and only ever contain meat, I will be the last man standing in the fight at the battle to keep your right to believe that <laughs> because I, I, everyone's opinion should be their own. But um, how, how about... Yeah. Well, how about natural cottage cheese? I mean, is there such a thing as unnatural cottage cheese? Or is it just cottage cheese? It is just cottage cheese. It is, yeah. you're right. And there, there, it shouldn't be plain cottage cheese either. Or unfavoured <laughs> cottage cheese because, yes, yeah, I'm to- I, I, can, I, I wasn't with you on the vegan sausage roll. I'm definitely with you on the cottage cheese front. Um, there's no excuse for that. Uh, utter nonsense and I also don't understand the concept of reduced fat cheese cheese is supposed to be preserved fat it's the whole point of its existence yes yes um, reducing the fat quantity within cheese is merely ridiculous um but to, to go back to your point of unnecessarily labeling of products which we're, we're sort of getting yeah. into now, I totally get that when you get a packet of peanuts that says may contain nuts you think well that's quite non-specific isn't it <laughs> It is a little bit, Jess. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, okay. I mean, I, I, I sort of get fresh milk, but no one sells unfresh milk. Or not true. You can have preserved milk, can't you? You can have UHT well, well, milk. It's called UHT milk, isn't it? Oh, well, all right. <laughs> I think the ordinary milk should just be milk. Well, skimmed, semi-skimmed, goat's milk, sheep's milk, whatever. But sort of fresh, well... Well, why would it be anything other than fresh? Because you don't see an unfresh milk. <laughs> That's marketing, though, isn't it? I mean, they, they want you to feel like it's, you yeah. know... Evoking so... something, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the. I think that might be where we're going to come into problems with our simpler labelling system for the universe that we're going <laughs> to come up with here. Because people are making a considerable amount of money from making fresh milk sell better than milk. Um, yes. Which, now you can get filtered milk. And I mean, I'm not sure what's happening there, but what are you putting in? I mean, the milk comes out of the cow ready to drink. It does. It does. I've never seen a calf looking around as if to say, excuse me, pass the Brita. I want to filter it before we get stuck in. I mean, that's not happening, is it? So what I mean is what is caught in the filter when the milk is filtered then? Nothing. I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs) The the only thing that's caught in there is some extra quid that they've extracted from the purchaser. Um, I I don't know what they're filtering out. I'm sure that Cravendale or uh, whoever it is that's flogging lots of different varieties of um, Mm. there'll be I'll have the head of filtered milk dairy UK on the on the email by the end of the week. I'm sure getting in touch tell me exactly how important it is that our milk is filtered yes. um 
But I mean, well, I'll tell you, apart from anything else, right? One thing we've agreed is that we're both grumpy old men when it comes to nonsensical uh, claims on packaging. Or unnecessary, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Okay. Brilliant. Um, oh, I, tell you, I don't know how I feel about this because I felt like I wasn't going to go with you on that because a sausage shape is just a sausage. Right. Yes. Oh, yes. Tractor going past or something. Uh, they're busy. I think they just started on the maize harvest around here, so there'll be a tractor right. rattling past. But, um, but then I've really gone with you. I've really warmed to the point. So, yeah, okay, I think you're in. You can have it. Let's go. Number one. Okay. <laughs> um, next one, then? Well, I think I was just wondering whether or not I was finished with you on that one. But I, I think I am, except to bring up another sort of little tiny pet hate, if yeah. I can, which is these sort of fake small brands that are popping up everywhere. oh yes the the non-existent farmer the non-existent farmer the reinvented brewer yes um, is a particular one i'm wondering if that happens in the world of gin oh it, of course it does yeah yeah of, co- of course it of course it does um, can we name and shame are we allowed to do that i wouldn't do that no I have a golden. I have a golden rule. Ever since I started, I've never badmouthed or said anything bad about another gin company in public. Well, good for you. That's or, fantastic. Or, or commented on their gins in public. No, no. Um, okay. You know, it's, I, I feel that it's sort of um, bad manners. You, you can't right. kill your gin by saying somebody else's is rubbish. I know it's very popular to bang a certain gin, which is the world's single best-selling gin. Um, but I don't partake <laughs> in the banging of it. Um, oh, what's yeah. the world's best-selling gin then? Is that Gordon's? It is. Gordon's is still the world's best-selling single brand of gin. Yes. Well, but there's nothing wrong with a with a Gordon's and tonic, is there? I mean, there is not. I'm I'm I I met the head distiller there, um, uh, in in a, in a meeting and event in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he's been with the company for a long, long time. He started, you know, working in the warehouse and bits and pieces. They really do take it seriously. I've no doubt they they are consistently producing a good quality product. Very few botanicals, that's true, but then sometimes less is more. Well, and and they're not claiming. No, I mean this not. is my problem, is it? My problem was that people, you know, pretending that they're a sort of micro bathtub gin distillery and actually they're just part of a of a large long-standing gin distillery. Yeah. Um, that would that would definitely be my issue in there. Right, okay, come on, Jonathan. I feel like we're on fire with this conversation. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm putting my seatbelt on. I'm strapped in. I'm ready for point number two, which I believe is the meat in the sandwich. Well, I think this is probably the most contentious one, which will get people's backs up a little bit, um, although it may have some champions. And of course, it's a little bit wider than the issue itself. But my my concern is that we have a culture. Uh, in terms of food selling in Britain, where we're racing towards the bottom, everybody who's a large food grocer is trying to compete on price and price alone. And I think it's a very dangerous and slippery slope, Um, which if we don't arrest it and turn it around, it will lead to, in my view, you know, food adulteration, exploitation of people further down pardon the phrase, the supply chain, I was going to say food chain, but the supply chain, but probably also in a hierarchical sense, the food chain, because the pickers who are cutting your cabbages and dealing with your poultry um, are a bit further down the food chain than the people who run the big companies. But um, my concern is that this 
desire to bring the price of everything down and make things appear cheap or get them cheap and you know suppliers being told across the board to reduce their prices by 12 percent or 15 percent um isn't good for the end customer because they will get an inferior product in the end that's my concern and and i suppose the the counter arguments people say is well people need cheap food and i understand that um but i think value is the right question is the food value is it nutritious has it been produced safely and has everybody who's been involved in producing that food received proper remuneration and reward um and, and that's a societal thing to make sure minimum wages are right and that food production standards are right. Um, but of course, the the price pressure and the competition is what forces those to be skirted around. And that's why we end up with bonded labour and the sort of things we hear about taking place, you know, modern slavery and so forth. So that's my that's my wider political point, if you like. But I think it's something that isn't being debated enough in society um and and we aren't we haven't got you know our major food raters aren't behind that they're still on the everything's about price which i think is dangerous rant over (laughs) no no it's not i'm going to encourage you to rant on that a little bit more um it's a pet subject of mine and i don't know what the answer is but we need to keep talking about it I think um, that's the is having a conversation about it, Jess. Yeah, yeah. There was a report on uh, the Radio 4 two weeks ago. Sorry, everyone. I do listen to a bit of Radio 4. Um, it's not quite as good as the Madam's cast, but nearly. Um, and it was a, a chap talking about it. Or literally, I was driving somewhere, so I haven't written down any notes or anything. But he'd done a report, or he and his team of boffins had done a report on the true cost of food. Or, you know, of, of standard sort of um, yes. supermarket sold mass-produced food. Now, uh, we can go on forever about how we ended up here. I mean, Joanna Blythman wrote a fantastic book, God, 15 years ago, called Shopped, all about how the supermarkets yes. uh, jumped on the, the bandwagon and, and taking control of the system. And, and also how we'd ended up in a position after the Second World War where we needed a lot of cheap food quickly and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But, you know, we're talking about events that happened a very long time ago. We need to take control back um, in certain ways. I don't know who we are even. Yeah. Um, but this chap was was absolutely on his knees. He said, "This is it's we, we've come up with a, a quantifiable thing here, which is every pound spent on a certain um, on a food product below a certain value. Every pound yes. of money spent on that is costing society in this country another pound." In healthcare, yes, alone, yes, without potentially having a further up to seventy-five pence of hidden environmental cost attached to it, which is also being paid by the taxpayer. So yeah. by by insisting on having incredibly cheap food, we're costing society more to prop up the problems that we're causing by that process. Now, that was something that I felt instinctively was probably the case, but to have it confirmed you know, by a, a, a peer-reviewed group of scientists, which I think is where we are, was just, you know, we have to sort this out. And uh, Sini Glaster, very smart woman, set up We FIFO and the um, and the book people and various other things, incredibly yes. intelligent and erudite woman who uh, came on to the very first episode of the Madam's Cast. She said it brilliantly. She said, we have to look after people who need food to be cheap 
but we cannot solve that problem and nor should that problem be solved mm. by the supermarkets and yes that in and of itself sort of encapsulates the whole thing really is that we're trying to deal with two problems with one solution and that is yeah. not going to work no I, it, it will only change if the consumer decides that they want to have assurance about where their food is coming from and a bit like clothing that there isn't child labor involved in the production of their food mm. um, for, as a sort of comparison yeah uh, and then then the retailers need to respond to that but that won't happen unless there is a debate and it won't happen unless in a societal sense we better enable people to be able to afford the better food because it food should be the right price not the lowest price Oh, absolutely. That, that sounds a bit trite, I know that. And it's a bit sort of 16-year-old idealism uh, mm -hmm. creeping in there. But if we don't have some idealism in our minds, um, we're not going to change things. And I probably, like you, have been in, in absorbing through osmosis the evidence of you know, this cheap food culture uh, and, and the impact it can then have on its environment. Um, and, you know, the, some of the very mass production facilities for some foodstuffs are not very pleasant places, and that's why no. they're tucked away and hidden away from public view. Um, really? But they're a consequence of trying to industrialise, um, and we have to industrialise to some extent, but trying to industrialise a process which would perhaps be better not industrialised, <laughs> if you follow me, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I really, actually, I completely do. And and what was very interesting for me this year specifically with the, um, oh, I'm going to bring it up myself now, despite my sort of self-imposed ban on banging on about it too much. But <laughs> with with the ongoing global pandemic at the beginning of this situation, way back in the spring, yes, everyone suddenly remembered how valuable food is to them. They did. Nothing else, really has any value unless you have a secure source of food because yeah. that is your primary i mean you can live without shelter you can live without heat to an extent you cannot live without food and water so once you've got your water sorted you've got to get your food supply sorted and i thought it was really interesting and showed an astonishing lack of trust of the food um delivery system that we have in this country that we had so many people going out and hoarding food, uh, in the which inevitably caused the problem rather than fixing the problem. But I just thought it was very, very interesting that people immediately thought, "Wow, hang on a minute, I'm going to make sure I'm all right on the food front." That's right. That's right. So that was my sort of um, thing, which strays into the world of politics, which, as a business, I tend to try and avoid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I try, try to be neutral uh, where we can um, yet it, it, is a, it is a debate we should be having because as you point on it's those systemic impacts of poor nutrition um, just compound the other aspects of poverty that we've got and, we, and when we look at the scale of food banks being used at the moment something's not something's not in balance I, I think you know i'm not pointing fingers at people but something's not in balance i think we can all agree that um and i don't think people use food banks simply because they're inept and can't provide for their families yeah. many of them are working very very hard in stressful jobs but for very little reward um 
I agree. And, and I think, oh, it's difficult, isn't it? Because there are always going to be people who think, oh, well, you know, if you can't afford, you know, you're not working hard enough, whatever. But if this year has shown us anything, it's that anybody's situation can change overnight. Oh, you know, and coming down the road now is some worse news in terms of employment in this country, for sure. Very different. Uh, we are only going to see that go up. And in fact, Trussell Trust, which is one of the UK's, I think it may in fact be the UK's biggest food bank yeah. provider service, um, are predicting, you know, a, a tripling in demand from where we are now by the end of the year. And that is just, I mean, this is seriously concerning. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, um, with all of that backdrop, this very important issue of long-term health and well-being of the food supply chain, the food production chain, and the quality of nutrition and people's long-term well-being gets sidelined by the most immediate things. It's that old importance in urgency matrix, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think this subject is very important. It doesn't feel urgent at the moment. Perhaps it should. That's perhaps what I'm just saying needs to be nudged into that urgent and important box to start having that dialogue. But we're still too busy talking about whether or not our vegan sausage rolls are going to be able to move between here and Australia <laughs> easily. <laughs> I mean, we've got visions of Spanish armadas, haven't we, blockading the Irish Sea. Um, I, I, we do live in unprecedented times, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, yeah, we, well, that's, yeah, that's a Chinese curve. <laughs> uh, may you live in interesting times, and we're certainly there. But I am, uh, I was born uh, with a glass half full. And my opinion is, this is a catalyst. We're in a catalytic yeah. situation right now. And if, um, if you know, I don't want to sound like Wolfie from Walthamstow, but if, if a few <laughs> people can, you know, can, and we have got some of the right people in some of the right places. And we have now got a very grown up conversation about organics. We've got a grown up conversation about food sustainability, yes, about um, self-reliant production. We've got grown-up people with lots of data having proper conversations now. And yeah. there is not a farmer in the country who doesn't want to do their job well and yeah. and would, would quite happily receive, you know, a better payment for growing what they would consider to be a better product, um, or at least get paid properly for the one they're producing enabling them to do it in a perhaps a, a cleaner and more yes. way but right now we're we're there and I, I think we have the opportunity at this moment yeah. to 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 birth a new way of doing this which may look a lot like an older way of doing it but you know until we get there we don't know but I might, that's my hope is that out of this ashes we will rise the phoenix of better food systems yes God, I've totally taken over on your point number not, two. Not at all. Not at all. I, I, I just think it's a big topic. It is a big topic, but it is, I think, by very important that we start it now. Yeah. We've totally got a state of flux. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, I'm just going to make a note uh, just briefly there so that I don't forget that you've made that brilliant point about the state of flux. Ooh. Oh, wow. Right, I promise I'm going to shut up now while you get on with point number three. <laughs> Well, 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 as a as a as a chef, this may touch upon you, and you you may bite back at me. Um, I, I just sometimes feel um, in in the world of fine dining and what we see on 
telly and all that kind of stuff, that sometimes there's an overemphasis on the method by which something's been made rather than focusing on the end result. Um, and maybe it's just theatre, maybe it's just showmanship or something. But um, my sort of feeling is sometimes that you, you read a restaurant description and there's, and there's an awful lot about the method of something's been made and we've used some liquid nitrogen and we've got some dehydrated something or other that we've powdered. And, um, and I just think sometimes it doesn't really matter how the sauce was made. What really matters is that the sauce is smooth and flavoursome and in sufficient quantity to, to match what you're eating. Um, so it's a bit of a sort of statement rather than a thing to fix, but I just think we ought to focus on flavour and taste rather than method of production. Does that okay, make so sense? What, yeah, <laughs> what, what are we going to call this? I mean, what, I, um, want a, I want a succinct title for it as a point. Well, uh, to bechamel or not. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the all-in-one method? Did you use the room method? I mean, no one asks the chef how the sauce was made. Um, from the diner's point of view, they want—they just want it to be right and in sufficient quantity, perhaps. Um, but often, I feel we the focus is on how something's been made rather than it itself. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And the, the reason for that, um, oh, I was going to keep shut up i'm gonna i'm gonna interject <laughs> um, <laughs> you might have a view on it being you know a creator of foodstuffs and yeah uh, yeah yeah theater. i under i understand that but it's just that kind of sometimes there's a inverted snobbery or a snobbery around oh oh so you just made that in a saucepan have you didn't you have a such and such a machine yeah, yeah. I, I'm someone told me oh this has been in a a water bath, you know, and the machine costs five thousand pounds. I'm thinking, well, well I, I'll, I'll see what it tastes like. That's what I'm interested in, and where did the yeah. duck come from? Yeah, but it's that sort of technology being applied. Is it needed? I don't know. No, no, very often not. And 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 I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of my, I, you know, I part of being a, a great cook. I, oh, that makes it sound like I think I'm a great cook. But I, a part of being a cook with experience is you you learn your craft. And yeah. as soon as you start to deconstruct craft for results uh, that are consistent, you will end up with mechanized processes and A to Z procedures for creating a dish. Now, if you if you follow the, the, oh. the cult of consistency, which has been uh, really... Uh, the forefront of a lot of restaurants thinking for a long time now yes. you will end up with mcdonald's because that is the most consistent restaurant anyone can ever name that's right yes and that is you know i don't see them with any stars okay yeah. so um i am not a fan at all of sous vide uh, meat that's cooked under vacuum in a in a plastic bag in a water bath to a specific degree because i find it non-human interaction mm. it feels weird to be doing it i understand why lots of people like that strange spongy texture that you get from the meat yes. and it's in that such a way to dissolve all the collagen inside but to leave yeah. the color but for me it tastes it, it, it the texture is wrong the juicing from the from the product is wrong when you eat it i don't I, I i'm not a fan of it maybe there's someone out there who can do it so brilliantly that i will change my mind um but I've yet to find them. Um, 
and I and I think you're also what you're doing there is you're in danger of de-skilling a craft. That's right. Yes. And, and and if we do that, if you do that, then you can pay people less. You can use less skilled people. And as soon as you take people out of food, even at a, putting it on a plate level of restaurant, yes, get problems in the same way that we've got problems up in your point number two because we're taking the people out of the equation um yeah. that that is that is a problem and, and well, i get off lightly with that one tim <laughs> <laughs> i don't i know i'm with you i don't want to know how nestled something in a you know i i want to eat it if it's awesome i want to eat it again i'm famous for ordering the same dish twice in a row at a restaurant while everyone else waits to have their dessert because i'm going to eat the same thing again that happens but it seldom happens because of the description on the menu yes yes yeah all right any examples when was the last time this happened to you i mean you don't have to name the place you were at i understand you don't want to do that that's fine but give me a just give me one more example. No, I, I think the one was the the sous vide bath sort of you know it's been in there for fourteen weeks you know it's <laughs> it's tightened, you know temperature control within half a degree uh, uh, but and and I suppose for me it's a bit like you know the gin I mean I don't have a lot of technology yeah and the temperature goes up and down a bit and then you just adjust it you think to yourself well do you know what. It's, it needs to be, I need to check it two hours earlier than I normally do to see if it's okay. And then you go, yeah, it's ready for the next thing. You know, I, I guess it's that that that, that kind of thing. Um, but yes, I, I think if people know they're making something, they know when it's right and they can just adjust it, can't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think there's a drive in restaurant cookery amongst chefs. You know, they've been encouraged a lot by some of the megastars of the culinary world mm. into this way of thinking and that is now really starting to show um it's 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 impact on the on mm. the industry as well and and i think yeah i'm i'm with you i mean i just let's not something... get on let's not get on to presentation because we then run out of time <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got time to launch a band the tweezer project just yet no not, um, not just yet not just yet no <laughs> Uh, no, but I, 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 I am okay with a few edible flowers because at least they get eaten. I, I yeah. suspect it's the trimmings that get discarded in order to turn a potato into a cube. Yeah, well, I would say in a good kitchen, those trimmings would be used for something else. Yeah, of but course. then, of course, also begs the question: yeah. Why should my potato be that shape anyway? It's it's, it's sort of odd transformation. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And someone said to me, I've given three little areas of, I don't know, whether they're hang-ups or whether they are um, irritations, but, you know, some, perhaps some food for discussion or thought. Yes. Well, I think so. And, yeah. you know, certainly um, inspire some lively debate, uh, debate uh, amongst the Madam Car- Madam's Cast listeners, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, you know, if nothing else, I've, I've had a good rant with you. I feel like this has been quite a cathartic recording for me so far. <laughs> although maybe that's just the gin kicking in (laughs) possibly possibly yes okay okay well jonathan i think you've successfully navigated the central element of the madam's cast and i think you've done it well uh i've enjoyed it i've had some laughs you've lured me into a few obvious Mm. uh, pitfalls where i've had to have a rant as well which is always fun for me uh, perhaps less interesting for the listeners 
Um, and now we're in the fun sort of end lighthearted yeah. bit where you get to use your desert island food book. Yes. The drink you would have while you were reading it. Yes. And if you'd like to, you can nominate someone real, fictitious, alive or dead to uh, pick up the baton at some point in the future and join the Madam's cast. Yes. Okay. Would you give me the book first? Well, the book I'm going to take to my island, which I hope will have some provender on it, because otherwise the cookbook's of no use. Um, so hopefully it's not Desert Island as such. Um, but I'm going to take Keith Floyd's Feast of Floyd. Oh, Keith Floyd. What a man. Yes. I, 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 I imagine he would have been a great person to spend a party time with. Probably a very generous host, but I understand not the world's best restaurateur in terms of running it in a, as a business. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he cared at all about and I, that. And, I, and I, I think not being the world's best restaurateur would probably be something he, he would be happy to have admitted himself. I think he did in his a couple of his writings. But um, I, I choose that book because it's got a variety of things in it. And uh, it was a narrow one because I do also like Floyd on Fish, which is a good book. Um, mm -hmm. But... Um, I remember for the first time ever, I cooked the lamb korma curry following his recipe in one of those books, in that book. And, uh, you know, I still cook that recipe today. Um, well, he had that nail, didn't he? I mm. mean, he, years before anybody else was thinking about food television, yes. really, in, in its modern sense, he had created the format, yes. done everything he wanted to do with it, then gone and done it again, nailed it all down, and he'd done the whole lot whilst yeah. trolley. You know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, yeah, and then and then came to a rather rock and roll end as well on the beach in Lyme Regis after yes. an extraordinary lunch at my mate Mark Hicks's place, yes. um, which it, you know had nothing to do with the meal and everything to do with Keith, I think. But, um, it's, a, it's, but it's a good book. I, I, I think there's, you know, there's a good chunk of different recipes in there and basic yeah. techniques, um, and um, not too much flouncing. Okay, it's excellent. It's practical. Yeah, a straightforward set of instructions for making yes. a version of the dish that's presented to you yeah. in a practical way. Okay, brilliant. Okay, we'll, we'll definitely slot that one into the Hall of Fame. No problem whatsoever. Now, what? And I'm, I'm quite interested to see what you're going to say here. What are you going to drink while you're flicking through the book? Oh, do you have any guesses? <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I don't <laughs> want to set up any any sort of obvious, um, you know, landmines. So I'm going to just let you tell me. Okay. Uh, well, I'm I, I'm a Gloucestershire boy. Uh, that's where I was born and spent most of my formative oh, years. So it's going to be a cider. Okay. Uh, and of course, you know, it's a whole new topic. You've got to find someone to talk to about cider apples because the world is full of some wonderful cider apples that desperately need protection. Anyway, yeah. but I, I, um, Henry Weston ciders, I think, are the type I prefer. And they, they have some enormous, I think, 500 or 2,000 gallon barrels, oak barrels with cider in. So I'd like to have one of those on my island with a tap. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't run out. So I don't run out. So, so it's Henry Weston's cider, but it's got to be the ones that have been in the oak barrel. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you. I, and yeah. that's back to 
you know, helping out as a as as a youth, Mr. Scrivens getting the hay in, and we were allowed to have cider. And cider was a strange thing as a as a child in Gloucestershire. People were quite happy to let you have cider at eleven, twelve, or thirteen. You weren't allowed to have beer, but you could have cider. Isn't that interesting? And I I don't know why that is, and, and I don't know your uncle Rosie. Um, <laughs> reference to the book cider with Rosie, um, but uh, yeah, so cider's kind of and and it. it Good cider is good. There's no question about that. Again, it's back to our initial point. If you've got the world's best cider apples and a bit of know-how, you can make the world's best cider. Mm, yeah, You can, can. Yes. So one of Henry Weston's great rivals over the border in Somerset is mm. uh, is the Thatcher's um, yes. cider brewery. Very good also, ciders, yes. Yeah, yeah. I used to do a bit of work with them. And um, Martin Thatcher, who's the current incumbent, his grandfather went and got all the trees from the apple research uh, orchard when yes. they were closing it and put them all uh, in one separate orchard on the farm yes. right next to the brewery. And once a year, they yes, make the cider once a year, obviously, but they take all of these 475 varieties and put them into one cider. And it's just slightly different every year on the production scale. And it's a tiny yes. thing. And they never want you to advertise it because they don't make enough of it for it to really be profitable it's just a fun project and it keeps the trees going and they want to save that library of incredible um apple history if you like so important yes so important yeah yeah and her meddlers but these apples are a very specific apple they're no good for eating but they are absolutely right for cider making yeah 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 which best resistant yes yeah they've they've you know, they were bred specifically to be like that. But, of course, apple trees are funny, aren't they? A seed from an apple will be whatever it wants to be. A seed from a particular apple tree will not make the same apple tree. No, no. it's amazing, isn't it? How it's extraordinary. Every Bramley apple tree in the world is descended from the original Bramley apple tree. Oh, hang on. And then, OK, so Senny, who... I was talking about earlier, who came on the first version yeah. podcast. She's also an author, of course, just in her spare time. And she wrote a novel um, uh, about a guy who grows potatoes and makes his own gin. Actually, quite interestingly, um, you, you might want to have a look at that at some point. But yes. in there, he's, he's talking about the stories. And, and the Bramley apple tree should not be called the Bramley tree at all. It should be called something else, and I can't remember off the top of my head, which is annoying, um, but there was a woman who had the tree in her garden, and it was should be named after her. It was the neighbour who pointed out the tree <laughs> yeah. and managed to get his name on it, or something like that. So the brownie apple tree is not a brownie apple tree at all. I'll look it up later and find out what it was supposed to be called. But yes, you're right. They all come from one cultivar, and it's just cloned from there. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. All right, okay. Well, you're allowed, definitely allowed, some oak matured uh, Gloucestershire cider to go with your Keith Floyd. It's Hereford. Floyd. It's actually Herefordshire. Anyway. Oh, okay. Hereford. oh, right. Hereford. We, we regard it as the same. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure they do in Hereford. Right. And yeah. um, would you like to make a nomination for someone who may or may not turn up on the podcast? Well, I, you know, um, does this have to be somebody who is in food or drink production? Tim, or you're happy to talk to people kind of on the fringes of it? Yes, I certainly am. And yeah, yeah, well, yeah, no, I, I think it's a very open church. 
Okay. Well, I, 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 I can give you a couple of nominations and explain why, and then you can work on them from there. Is that okay? Well, you're technically only allowed one, but I think oh. I, on this specific occasion, because you've been so good at only choosing one book, I'm <laughs> going to let you have a couple of draft nominations. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll offer you a couple of interesting characters then. So first of all, I would offer you um, a, a self-taught blacksmith called Ben Wong, oh, who is also okay. a musician. And uh, Ben's a very creative person, and uh, we we have a sort of refill station in Gerald. So we have a ten liter balloon glass bottle, nice. uh, and he he built a framework for it to stand in with a gimbal, so you could actually pour the gin out of it. Nice. So so Ben's an interesting character, and then to give you one that's sticking to the food side, um, you you. you couldn't do much better than Pat speak to Jackie and Sarah of Marsh Pig Salami, who make excellent charcuterie. Marsh Pig Salami. salami. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Ben, Wong, ben Wong is the pocket forge, uh, and he makes bits and pieces for us um, whenever we need something making. So I've got a handmade knife by him, which I use for paring the lines, for instance. Oh, lovely. And he sounds like... Um... You know, you need these local craftsmen, don't you? If you're going to do something crafty yeah. and locally yourself, then you suddenly realise you need all these other crafts people about you. Otherwise, yeah. you're stuck. So he makes suits of armour for mice. <laughs> and, 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 right. and, and some of these mice ride on crows. Okay, that's very cool. Which I think is a... You may or may not agree with taxidermy, but then if someone has gone to that trouble, what's the harm in dressing the white mouse up in a bit of armour? Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a taxidermy fan because I think I think um, you can study uh, you know, the history of animals that way, and I, and I think it's quite right. interesting. Unfortunately, my wife is not a taxidermy fan, so this is something we have to draw a line across uh, the sitting room <laughs> occasionally. Although I have managed to sneak in a rather interesting uh, roebuck skull that i took last year over in the yarty vale and yes. a couple of grouse that i shot up in northumberland um a few years ago so i've managed to get a little bit in the house but i don't think it's going to take off as it were no 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 um jonathan i think we're there thank you so much well, for chatting you. away that's been brilliant well thank you very much tim no you're welcome and i look forward to uh meeting you in person one day very soon and um anyone's got any questions they can find you via the norfolk gin website they can yes excellent and are you on any social media platforms mm, facebook instagram and twitter yes okay and are they all the same handle you're easy enough to find well if you type in norfolk gin you will find us i mean they're all slightly different sometimes you have to put an underscore in and sometimes yeah. you don't yeah. and, um, and in fact on my twitter one i i left out the l in is there an L in gin? Well, there's, a, there's an L in Norfolk. Oh, of course there is. <laughs> but it's silent. And so, I don't know, I created the Twitter account and, I, and somehow I didn't type in the L. So there it is. <laughs> okay. Well, brilliant. Well, I'm glad that neither of us can spell. And um, I look forward to bumping into you properly and sharing some of your fine uh, produce with you. I, I might try and see if I can squeeze... Uh, the Norfolk gin in as an ingredient on one of my cocktail classes and, and I might steal your white lady cocktail and take it for my own. So it's um, worth trying. On, on the right day, 
it's the right thing. Perfect, perfect. John, thank you so much for your spare time and your enthusiasm. Um, I look forward to, as I say, to meeting you in person one day soon. But for now, I'm going to say cheerio. Cheerio. Thanks, baby. Bye. Hello.